we're in our third and final look at that Christian, the topic of Christian liberty from Paul's letter to the Romans. And really, this week is a summary of what we've looked at the last two weeks, and there's a little bit of an added emphasis where Paul wants to make sure that we really get this on this topic. With that said, I want to emphasize that in discussions on Christian liberty, and maybe you've experienced this as as well, oftentimes Christians are more concerned with knowing what they can or cannot do as a follower of Jesus. They're more concerned with thinking about that when they should be more concerned with preserving or cultivating godly relationships with their fellow Christian in their local church. In other words, we're so focused on our own lists and not on love with each other. We're fixated on personal practices and not on personal relationships. And this is what Paul has sort of been trying to recalibrate for us as we've been in this discussion. So even though this section is one of the few areas in Scripture we can turn to in order to get biblical insight on how to think through those second and third tier issues in the Christian life, those gray areas, those things that we as Christians can agree to sometimes disagree on and still be friends, the main point of this section isn't really about Christian liberty. It's about the importance of Christian unity in the midst of our diversity and and the midst of our diverse uh, opinions and experiences. And we do that through our mutual love for Christ and mutual love for one another. And we're going to see more of that this week as Paul wraps up that discussion for us in a really clean, tidy way. So we're going to look at chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We'll read it together. Paul writes, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We'll stop there at verse 7. The The big idea, the main point, what is Paul talking about in this section really can be boiled down to what he writes there in verse 7. He makes it very simple for us. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That is the point of this text. Not only is the main point of this text, it's the main point of the last few sections that we have been looking at on Christian liberty. In fact, you may remember the way Paul opened this discussion in chapter 14 verses 1 through 4. I'll read it again. You can look back with me. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. He says one believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So again, the main idea is what he says there in verse 7. Welcome one another 
Be a welcoming body of believers as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So you can see the way Paul opens this and the way Paul closes this discussion on Christian liberty that the main idea, the main goal of everything he's talking about, the main application that he wants all of us as believers to do in order to show that we are truly changed people, transformed by the gospel, is to be a welcoming body of believers to the people who come into our fellowship from different cultural backgrounds than you do and maybe hold different opinions than you do on all those non-essential matters of faith. And let me just clarify this because I think this is important. He, He isn't saying that we as a church are to be inclusive because it's not like Paul is some idealistic progressive who for some reason thinks that we need to have some ethnic diversity program that is inclusive for inclusive sake. That is not what he's saying at all. Paul wants them to be inclusive of their fellow believer. So he's not saying welcome everyone even if they don't believe in Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He said because they believe in Jesus... Yes, they have different opinions of you, but, or than you, but yes, they believe in Jesus, therefore welcome them, and it's on the basis of this command that God has welcomed them into the front door of the church, metaphorically speaking. So don't create a side door where you say, sorry, you don't fit in here. You're not of the same mind that we are in regard to political opinions or cultural uh, actions or whatever it is. So they are to do this because God has welcomed them, and secondly, to be a reflection to those outside in the world looking in at the church and saying, can God welcome someone like me? I I don't know if I'm like them. Can God allow me, though I'm different and come from different experiences, am I welcome into that place? And, And the answer should be a resounding yes, Absolutely, and we reflect that by the way we welcome people. Here's the good news for all of us. God doesn't just save one kind of person. He doesn't create one kind of Christian subculture either. He saves people from every tribe and tongue and nation, from every cultural background, from all walks of life. The gospel is the good news that saves all who believe And the church is to be the gospel community that welcomes all who believe, no matter those cultural backgrounds or where they come from or the baggage that they bring with them. I've said in prior weeks, but I'll say it again. In this section, Paul isn't confronting theological viewpoints per se. He's confronting conflicting cultures. If he was confronting theological differences, he may be a little less charitable with them, like he was with the Judaizers in the Galatians. He would say, those people need to be cut off from you. And he wasn't dealing with rampant sin in the church either, like like he was talking about in 1 Corinthians, because in that sense, he was a little bit more uh, decisive and direct, again, like he was in Corinth. No, that wasn't the case here in the churches in Rome. Instead, this was just simply a clash of culture. On the one hand, you had converts, people who had converted to Christianity from Judaism, and much of their culture was wrapped around uh, the legalistic culture and traditions largely influenced from the Old Testament law. And then on the other hand, you had Gentile 
believers who converted out of pagan religious cultures. And these two groups were very, very different. And yet now, all of a sudden, through faith in the same Lord and the same Savior, they found themselves calling each other brother and sister, which was a glorious truth to proclaim, but at the same time, not easy to work out because there's a clash of culture. And we understand this. If you've been married, you understand this. In the first month, right, you get married and you move in together and everything's blissful love, right? Until that first week. And then there's a clash of culture and you realize the the unassumed expectations that you had going into that marriage. She's wondering why you're not cleaning the toilets like so-and-so in the family did for them. And you're wondering why she's not mopping your floors like, like so-and-so in the family did when you... And there's this clash of culture, right? How come I'm having to cook my meals? How come this is happening? I didn't know I had to do my laundry. I, I thought they did that for me, right? We have all of that because that's what happened in our, in our upbringing. That's what we saw modeled to us. So even in our own little bubbles, there is a clash of culture. But we see this in the church. And what gets us through that experience, right, in marriage is our love and commitment to Christ and and to one another. But we see this in the church. Though we don't have (coughs) the same type of cultural differences they had in the church then, we still experience people coming from different backgrounds and life experiences. I I think one of the ways we see this the most is generational differences and the different cultures and perspectives that generations have. And, And one of the things that I'm thankful for in this church that God is doing is bringing a mix of generations together, younger and older and everything in between, which I might say is not easy to do. It's not easy to do at all. Most of the time you'll see churches that are filled with older people and churches that are filled with younger people. Why? Because people like to huddle with people that are just like them. That's human nature. But it's not healthy. It's not the sign of a healthy church. It's not a healthy practice, and we need to actually intentionally work against that. This is one of the reasons why we do life groups the way that we do them, because we want to challenge those cultural lines that we often define for ourselves and bring people together. Yes, it is a challenge to be unified in the midst of that diversity, but we need that. We need new Christians to interact with more mature Christians. And we need older to interact with the younger and vice, vice versa. Because if you just have young Christians, they don't know what they're doing. And they end up falling back into old patterns. And if you just have older Christians, then they get inward focused, all on themselves and, and preferences. And th- there's a term, xenophobia, which is the fear of outsiders, people coming into your culture. And, and at the, f- the heart of xenophobia is the fear of my personal comforts being threatened by the insertion of someone else who may think differently than me on matters of indifference. And yet we see xenophobia in the church all the time, and yet we should be the most hospitable people ever, not fearing the outsider, but loving the outsider, welcoming them. And this is what Paul is talking about. Again, here's the good news. God in his grace, he loves us enough to force us into situations and into relationships that cause us to change. He brings different people together by his grace in order that we might become different and not stay the same in our little routines and 
ruts. And that's what we're discussing this week. So with that said, let me take a few minutes and walk through this passage with you and see the way that Paul summarizes uh, all that he has said so far on this subject and how he lands on that conclusion in verse 7. And I was finding a way to organize this, and the best way was just asking those simple questions, who, what, why, and how. So that's the framework we're going to look at. So who is he talking to in this passage? Notice there in verse 1, the who Paul is directly writing to is <coughs> we who are strong. Now, strong is something we've talked about before. This is somebody who is spiritually mature. Their conscience has been recalibrated by Scripture. And, and in this section, again, we've been talking about Christian liberty, and Paul points out that when it comes to these non-essential matters, you usually have two different groups. Those who have a weak conscience, those who think, I, I can't do certain things because I feel like I'm sinning against God or sinning against myself or somebody else. And then you have those people who have a stronger conscience who know, uh, I can do those things because it's really just a matter of indifference. I can do it to the glory of God or, or not do it. And, and though these two groups are in existence, they're not equal in influence. And we see this by the way he references them. One is stronger and one is weaker. Both are equally loved by God. That's not in question here. But they are not and should not be equal in influence because... One is newer, one is weaker in their faith and in their conscience regarding certain things, while another is more mature, more established in their faith regarding those same practices. And we see that Paul is a lot more clear and a lot more direct. He expects more of the mature Christian. He's holding them who are strong to a higher ethical standard of love than those who are weaker and newer in their faith, those people who are still figuring out. And, and we understand this, right? We don't expect things of our children that we would expect of an adult person, and that's what Paul is talking about here. Those who are weak, all he says to them is this, hey, while you're still figuring it out, just don't be judgmental. <laughs> don't walk in to a church or into a group of Christians and immediately start nitpicking them because they aren't meeting all of your preferences or expectations or opinions. Instead, have a teachable spirit. That's what he's saying. But it's to those who are strong that these verses are written. Yet, notice, they are publicly noted. So even though maybe he, in a room like this, he's addressing those who are strong, he also knows the weaker in the room because he wants them to hear, hey, this is where I want you to be too in the future and what God is expecting of you. But I, I want you to notice the more important thing that Paul includes himself in this group. He says, we, I'm with you, we who are strong have an obligation to the weak. And, and what I want to say on that is don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He isn't being arrogant or presumptuous about his own spiritual maturity by thinking of himself as strong and everyone else as weak. His purpose in including himself in this group, those who are strong, is simply to say, listen, I'm obligating you to act a certain way toward the weak, but, but I'm with you in doing the exact same thing. Thing. I am an apostle of Jesus, and yet I am obligated to do just as you are. And I'm sure you've noticed this in your life, but one of my biggest pet peeves about certain leadership styles is that oftentimes we see leaders expect things from the people under them that they themselves would never think to do themselves. 
For example, and, and maybe I'm a little too strong on this one, but I have a, a friend who is a pastor, and the other day I was talking to him, and we were talking, of, he was talking to me about how to create a culture of evangelism in his church. And he, and he started complaining to me and saying, Aaron, I don't know what to do. Uh, the people in my church just will not evangelize, and they will not invite people that they know to church. And I, and I said to him, and understand I have a good relationship with him, so I'm able to say what I said to him. I said, well, people are only going to do what they see modeled to them by their pastor. If you're not doing it, they're not going to do it. And, and I was just a little pointed with him. And, and it was that sort of idea of like, why aren't they doing this? And they, yet I know him and I'm like, because you're not doing it. So, so why would they do it? Why would your church be a welcoming church when the leadership isn't, isn't welcoming? Why would they be discipling people when the leadership isn't discipling people? Why would they be relational when, when you're not relational? And that's Paul's point here. He's saying, listen, I'm just as responsible as you are to get down and hanging out with people the weak among them, I am just as obligated to serve the new Christian as you are. I am in this with you. Just because I have the title over my name, apostle, doesn't mean that I'm different. Christian leadership, true Christian maturity, never leads from behind. It never says, go in there and do that. And only sometimes does it lead from the front. Most of the time, it is arm and arm, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, Christian leadership. This is the model of Jesus, right? He took 12 guys and said, come and follow me. Come and walk with me. And yet far too often, we see Christian leaders standing behind their pulpits or getting onto social media, preaching and pontificating things to others that they themselves would never do. Sure, they may have done it in the past, but they wouldn't say, as Paul does here, and obligate themselves to serve their weaker brother. But that's the who in this section. And what does he say to them? So that's our next question. The who and then the what. What is our next question? Notice there are three things he says the mature person is to do. First, they are obligated to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, this word Paul uses translated as bear can be tricky uh, he likely doesn't mean just put up with them, <laughs> which could be a way to translate that, right? Just tolerate them for a season while they're growing. Now, maybe in some senses that could be true, but what he likely means is to support them, much like these beautiful beams in our, in our building here. Uh, they bear the weight of the roof that is above them. So the idea with this phrase is that we are to bear or support those who are weak, meaning we don't serve in leadership like this, like we're up here and they're under us. No, it, true leadership is like this, and we are underneath. We come alongside and come underneath them and hold them up. And, and how do we do that? Well, we do that by getting to know them, by hearing their story, by offering them help if they need it, by serving them in whatever way we can. This is what Paul has in mind with this phrase. Secondly, he says, we who are strong are not to please ourselves. This, of course, is a natural exclusion in light of that first command. It is hard to serve someone when you're so occupied with thinking about how to serve yourself, right? So in order to do the first and this third one, we need to examine our own agendas. 
What, is it all about me and my preferences and what I want and my goals? Am I more concerned with serving self or serving others? Third, Paul writes that we who are strong are instead to seek to please our neighbor and do that by building them up. And as we read that, it may be helpful to ask the question that man asked Jesus before he told that famous parable of the Good Samaritan, who is my neighbor? (laughs) Who is this person that Paul is talking about that he has in mind with this word? And I think the answer is obvious. He's he's talking about welcoming people who are different than me. That don't don't immediately fit into my clique. Those people who are just like me and and we have the same hobbies and things like that, your, your neighbor, those outside that circle. And he said, those people who live near you but aren't in your immediate circle of friends, you need to think about how do I bring those people in? How do I serve those people outside of that circle in order to bless them and hopefully bring them into the community of faith near me? But what he says beyond simply pleasing them or bringing joy to their lives, is that we are to build them up, which is a great reminder, because unfortunately, Christians are far too often known for tearing down and not building up. And, and friends, we need to strive to make that our habit and aim, to build up and not tear down. We see on social media or different outlets and ways we get information, or, or even in church gatherings, the the constant tearing down and criticizing of this person or that situation or that institution when instead we are called to come alongside and build up and strengthen, to encourage, not to discourage, to inspire, not devour those who are different than us, yet are genuine Christian believers. So this is the what we are to do as mature believers. So the next question is why? The, the question your five-year-old asks you over and over and over again, Why? After all, why should we live this way? Why do we have to do this? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. In fact, the why question is the heart of this passage. Everything you've been talking about, Paul, welcoming these people in, having people who aren't like me into my inner circle, that sounds too hard. Why do I have to do this? Why should I bear with the weak and build them up? Why should I not seek to please myself and instead seek to please others? Well, Paul tells us why in verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For, for a further or a fuller picture of this, later on you can read Philippians 2 because he spells it out even more. But the point Paul is making here is clear. The reason why we are to act this way is not just because it's the right thing to do as as human beings, but because Jesus acted this way toward us. He could have just stayed in heaven. He didn't have to come down. He didn't have to take on flesh. He didn't have to live in poverty and eventually suffer and die at the hands of sinners and those people that he made in his image and had so many hopes and dreams and yet dashed it all through our rebellion and sin. He didn't have to do any of that, but he did it because it was the only way. It was the only way any of us could be saved. That's that quote there that Paul talks about is, is from Psalm 69. And it points out that our sin 
against the God who made us was paid for and experienced by Jesus in our place, that he suffered for you so that you could be welcomed into God's house. It was because he bore your sin, your shame, your rebellion in himself that you could be saved. He was your substitute and mine. Certainly if the eternal, holy God who made heaven and earth, if he could make the ultimate sacrifice, he who held the highest office, yet came down to serve the lowest and the weakest and the broken and the ones who rebelled against him, though he could do all of that for you, certainly you could make the smaller inconvenient sacrifices for your fellow brother and sister in Christ. That's his point. That's why you who are strong ought to do these things, because Jesus did them all for you, and to a much greater degree than we could ever do them. But now, now we have another question. The why is established. We know who is he's talking about, what we're supposed to do. What we need to understand now is, is, is how. How can we do this? How can we do these things? After all, this is a pretty lofty goal when you think about it. Anyone, when they think about this, knows I cannot do that, especially if they're mature in their faith. They know this is too big for me. So how are we to do this? How are we supposed to do this? Because we must admit we cannot do it on our own. And to that, Paul gives us three, three ways that we are to do what we know to be impossible for ourselves, but not impossible with God. The first thing he points out is how you can do this is through the instruction of the Word of God. We see that in verse 4, that what was written in former days was written for our instruction to give us endurance and encouragement in order that we might have hope. Hope for what exactly? Hope that we can do this. Hope that we can be a healthy church. Hope that we can be growing, maturing Christians. Hope that we can actually be different than what we are and were yesterday. That we can do these things he's calling us to do. Most of you know this, but the Bible is filled with scrappy people. We often think that the Bible is filled with all these heroes. Uh, They were a mess. And they were a mess just like us. And, And just like you and me, they were a mess, but, but God used them in extraordinary ways and in extraordinary things. So the hope that we have, that we gain from the scriptures, is when we consider that if God can do that with them, he can certainly do that with us, which encourages us to continue to press on. It gives us the endurance to continue to press on. So the first how is just simply diving into the Word of God and knowing the Word of God. Without God's Word as our light and guide, we would never know the will of God for us. But with His Word, we are able to do what He has called us to do. But there's more. In addition to the Word, how we are going to do what we are called to do is through prayer. And that's exactly what Paul does in verse 5. In light of what he just said about the word of God, he uses that as a catalyst to pray for them. Look at it. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement that we get from the word, but may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. You see, the word of God, we often think of it as just like some old manual on how to live life to the fullest, 
When instead, to truly encounter the Word of God is to have an encounter with the God of the Word. The, the Bible, in a fascinating way, is the only book where every reader throughout time and space can have a personal relationship with the author. Have you ever thought about that? That the only way any of us are going to be able to do what God has called us to do in His Word is by seeking the author. And and the one who wrote and provided this revelation to us by praying to that God to bring it about in our lives. And thirdly, how we are going to do what Paul is calling us to do is through relationships. Both in his prayer and in the beginning of verse 6, Paul talks about this body of believers working together to this single end. The fact is, we can't do this on our own. But both through the encouragement and endurance that we get from the Word of God and from God Himself through prayer, we also get through relationships, the transformed people of God. And because we, holding one another in, uh, in accountable and encouraging each other and stirring one another up to love and good works, as the author of Hebrews talks about, there is hope. There is hope that we can be what God calls us to be. This is one reason I was thinking about this, why church online, which is helpful, why it could never replace the gathering of God's people together. Cody and I were laughing, or I think Rob and I were laughing this week about how some churches are getting into the metaverse now. And I'm thinking to myself, how can you do church in your mind? When earlier in in chapter 12, he was talking about glorifying God in your body, right? But that's what church in the metaverse is essentially saying is you don't need to glorify God in your body anymore. All you need to do is slap something on your face and virtual walk around, virtual cup of coffee, virtual watch the screen. I don't know. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. It's not real church. Maybe it's like, I don't know, like a fun roller coaster ride or something like that, but it's not church because it needs to be in meaningful, real, personal relationships. That's how change is brought about. Which brings us to our final question. To what end? To what end? This is the bigger why question. We know why because of what Jesus did for us, but why? Why are we supposed... What is is the end goal that God has in mind for all of this? And the simple answer that Paul gives us is there in verse 6, that together... With one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've quoted it before, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it poses this question, what is the chief end of man? To what end? What is the point of our lives? And the answer that is given is this, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Any other goal is subhuman and sub what God has created us for. Friends, the reason why God wants us to be a church and a people that are welcoming to brothers and sisters in Christ who come from different cultures than we do, different generations than we do, is so that God may be glorified in our midst to a watching world. You may be wondering, how is God glorified in that? And the answer, of course, is simple, because where else, where else will you find a group so diverse and yet so authentically loving. Where else would you find that? Where else will you find a group of people not committed to their own interests or agendas or goals, 
but to the care and concern of the least of these. In the world, the mantra is the survival of the fittest. Only the strongest survive, right? This is the mantra of the world. In the church, it's the strengthening of the weakest and reaching to the lowest. God is glorified when his people live in such unity that the world looks in and says, there is something different about those people. And I can't help but want to know what it is. And my hope is that the watching world would say such things of us. And we, we pray as a church that would be the case. Thus we pray as Paul did as we close. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion. God, we come before you this morning and Lord, what an encouraging word to us. Not only do you set before us this high and lofty goal of being transformed and and being used by you and, and being different, but you also have given us all of the reasons why and and hows. You've given us the tools on how we're going to make this happen. And, and you've given us the vision at the end that we might be this one unified voice and group of people that bring glory to you, which is our greatest good. And we need that reminder because oftentimes we look at life and wonder, do you, do you care? Are you even there? And we know from the text this morning that that you are and and that you do care and that you do have a plan and purpose for our lives, even even in the mess. And then if some are wondering, man, can I even be welcomed into the family of God? Will, Will God accept me in light of all the things that I've done? The answer is a resounding yes. Everyone is welcome at the feet of Jesus who come to him by faith and receive his grace. And we are so thankful for that. But we pray for this unity. We pray for this harmony. We pray for this oneness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.